Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk with Marion Faisal, founder and editorial director of The Adventurine. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com. And I'm calling in from Los Angeles and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com. Calling in from New York, New York. New York, New York. Was it the last interview we did? I sound a little scratchy. And, uh... Yes, we're taking turns here. <laughs> there you go. So you sound okay, though. You sound good. Yeah, I, I feel fine. Here, in, it's the last day of November that we're taping this. And in LA, November is the month where the Santa Ana winds, they're kind of the dry desert winds that in other parts of the world are known as like Shirokos or Shirakos and you know in the Sahara they have them but they make people crazy and they stir up all kinds of stuff and they make me very congested because all the stuff in the atmosphere so over Thanksgiving my mom lives in an area near the canyons and the winds just howl and they were howling and Incredibly so. And so I blame it all on those winds. They're like the devil winds. But anyway, how was your Thanksgiving? It was very nice. Uneventful. But uh, I think it's good, right? You you want it to be uneventful. Yeah. You like a, me- a mellow, you know, too many families members and you risk a little drama or too few family members and you risk a little drama. It's, it's nice to have just a smallish mix of people who maybe don't have too many family tensions. But anyways, tonight I wanted to mention, and, and this will have passed when listeners are, are listening in, but I'm going to an event at the Sotheby's Gallery in Beverly Hills for the Irish jeweler Nigel O'Reilly. Our guest, who I will introduce in a moment, I'm sure is well aware of him, but I'm excited. I'm not very familiar with his work, but it's quite high-end, quite highbrow, and clearly the, the Sotheby's showing is proof of that, but I'm excited. We've, we've bantered enough. Let me let me set up our guest who I consider a friend. I've known her for many years. She is often the number one person I turn to when I'm doing a trend story because she's got incredibly expansive knowledge of jewelry, of trends, of the history of jewelry. And she's worked with so many incredible houses and she's got a wonderful reputation. Many of you will know her, Marion Faisal. She's a jewelry historian and author, founder and editorial director of The Adventurine, which is her website. It has you know, amazing coverage of jewelry and red carpet and trends and designers. And I'm sure she's familiar with Nigel O'Reilly, but we'll hear her thoughts. Mary, and welcome. It's so nice to have you. Thank you for having me, Robin. Victoria, I was going to say, Victoria, you know, when we get a cold in the, the fall in New York, we just call it a seasonal shift. We don't have all this drama with winds. Drama. The, devil, the devil winds aren't... The devil winds. It sounds so much more exciting. Yeah, that sounds better. I know. Yeah. <laughs> There's stories about people ending up in the, you know, ER visits spike when the winds are howling. Anyway, we, oh, wow. we, we've talked enough about them, but they are a dramatic element here. Um, another dramatic and, and very sad element that I actually wanted to ask you about, Marion, before we formally start our, our podcast with you is we just got word that the very, very talented and fascinating jeweler Daniel Brush passed away. Now you were, you've known him for a long, you had known him for a long time. Is that, is that right? What what can you tell us about Daniel and your, your understanding of his art? I had actually heard a few weeks ago that he was ill in the way that, you know, sounded grave. I don't know what his illness was, but even knowing that I was very taken aback to get the news. I learned last night that he passed away. Hmm. And I think that many people were, although 
you know, Daniel always touted himself as a hermit. You know, over the last 30 or so years, he had become really a cult hero in the jewelry world. And he certainly was the subject of several books. Most recently, Vivian Becker did a book on his jewelry. Before that, he's been the subject of exhibitions for his objects and gold and, you know, just a super talent who really revived methods from the distant past, from the work he did with granulation to, you know, 18th, 19th century lathes that he worked on. He was just a super intellect and, um, uh, you know, kind of the philosopher jeweler king. I've watched a bit of video on him and I read a lot of interviews. He spoke in this very uh, sometimes little esoteric way. Did he cross that way in personal interactions? He is unchanged, you know, on camera or off camera. So completely esoteric. I mean, he he described himself as eccentric. And um, yeah, I, I too was looking back at some of the videos today and found one from when he had an exhibition. I think it was Gold Without Boundaries. It was in 2004. And I'd say that was kind of one of his really first big moments. It, it just brought me to tears because the way he was talking on CBS Sunday Morning on this special was exactly the way he was in real life. He was absolutely eccentric. He was wild. And it made me realize, you know, granulation, he was probably the greatest person at granulation in the world, which he would describe to us for three hours if he was with us right now. But there was something about the way he spoke and that deep, deep passion that he almost became like a shaman and, you know, gained these followers, which were pretty high, powerful people that really just fell under his spell. You know, like Nicholas Boss at Van Cleef and Arpels gave him exhibitions at Le Col and Francois Curiel at Christie's was certainly an acolyte of his. So I think a lot of that really had to do with he knew how to, I don't want to say sell because that would be the opposite of, you know, his lack of commerciality, but he really knew how to romance you into loving and understanding what he was doing. Gosh, that's such a great summary of him. Like I had one interaction with him when I went to visit him at his law in Manhattan and um, he was you know kind of terrifyingly smart so it was it was a difficult interview not because he wasn't interesting and talkative but it was just hard to figure out how to even ask him a question that might provoke him to say something I and I did quote him in a New York Times article because we were talking about art and art, art jewelry or whether jewelry is art and I asked him something about you know the wearability and he said well you know you could put a dinner plate on your head and it's wearable you know he just sort of <laughs> very much speak in this crazy philosophical way, but it was just such a pleasure to listen to him. He was incredibly gifted and such an intellect. And I just, my heart breaks for his wife because I know they were oh. just such partners in life and love. And yeah, Olivia Brush was really, wow. You know, Daniel could not have done or had the extraordinary career and experience. And it's really the, the ability to follow, go down all those paths that he did without the support of Olivia. And my heart just really is crushed for her because I feel like it, it came out of the blue. They do. They did have a son, Scylla. So so that gives me some solace. Oh, for, that's but, yeah. right. Okay, good. Yeah. I, I'd forgotten that he they had a son. Okay. Oh, wow. Well, so that was a sad note to start on, Marion. But we <laughs> normally start in a much more, um, wow. 
I don't know about festive note, but we always like to hear about where you're from. I grew up in the Midwest in Columbia, Missouri. So it was a college town. I was in jewelry really pretty much right away. I mean, immediately. It's the only thing I've ever done. So, you know, when I graduated from college a long time ago, decades ago, there wasn't like kids have today, they have, all, you know, I feel like kids have all these internships and, you know, they're so working on their careers, even when they're in school. And I feel like that wasn't the way when I was in college, even here in New York, it, it just really wasn't what people were doing at the time. So I was just about to graduate from NYU and I thought, gee, you know, I don't have any office experience. <laughs> Maybe I should do something over the summer. And I, I kind of mentioned it to a friend of mine and she said, oh, well, my sister works in this office and they're looking for somebody to transfer this jewelry collection and put it on computer. And I thought, oh, that sounds like fun. I'll go do that. And that's where I started my jewelry career. I guess initially I was kind of an archivist for Ralph Marion, oh. and I worked there for 25 years. Could have been longer. Yeah. Oh my God. I yeah. missed all that. Of, like, wow. And so 20, so you were an archivist and remind us what Ralph Marion did or what his- Well, Ralph Marion, he was a great patron of Daniel Brush. <laughs> so that's actually when I met Daniel Brush, he used to come to the office all the time. You know, his main form of business was that he was a precious gems dealer, not a you know white diamond dealer, but really colored stones. He was a pioneer in the pink diamond area, but I had nothing to do with any of that. And Ralph had collected jewelry. So he had a vast collection of Cartier, you know, the mystery clocks and the cigarette boxes and vanity cases, as well as, you know, the Tutti Frutti, vast collection of Tiffany, Van Cleef and Arpels, Lalique, really 20th century jewelry. When you say you were an archivist, like yeah. what did you do? What, what It kind was of literally a time when computer, I mean, because I'm a hundred years old, it was literally a time when there were no computers. When I started, it was like that inflection point in change in society. It was 1989 when I started. And so Ralph had this dream that the jewelry collection, all this information that had been written, you know, just kind of cards from descriptions and carrot weights and a little bit of history that Penny would do, that all of that would be transferred to go onto a computer. So naturally, I learned about everything because at first, you know, it was a summer job and I was transcribing this information to go onto a computer. I mean, Ralph's collection at that time was considered you know, one of the greatest jewelry collections ever assembled of the 20th century. Working with Ralph and Penny, they were such creative people. They were both such intellectuals and classicists. And Ralph also had a massive collection of cameos and intaglios. So Penny could kind of identify the ancient Greek myth and a cameo in an instant. And, you know, we would talk about Cole Porter, who owned, you know, Mrs. Cole Porter, who owned the jewelry. So we would talk about Cole Porter. He also had, you know, jewelry from Irving Berlin that belonged, you know, that was from Cartier. So of course it was expensive and valuable, but I didn't know anything else. So I suppose when I was, at first I was looking at it, I mean, anyone could tell these were beautiful objects, but there was a lot of artistry to the pieces that Ralph had. So I suppose I came at it kind of like an art historian, you know, cause I studied art history in school. And then, you know, the way Ralph and Penny approached it, they had such an intellectual contextual approach to the jewelry that that was really how I learned about it. So it wasn't like learning about something of tremendous value. It was learning about the time in which it was made or the cultural importance of the pieces. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. 
please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. You know, you you mentioned Penny and Prado, of course, we know she was your longtime writing partner, but tell us a little bit about her. Like, was she already, she was a historian, was she already a jewelry specialist, you know, had been had been for decades when you met her? Penny started working for Ralph in very similar circumstances right out of college. It was actually Ralph's father who ran the business when Penny began. And she also kind of split her time working at Christie's. And she did the same thing, which was to write about why would someone be making something with carved Indian gems at this time? You know, where did these things come from? It was kind of, it's the detective work of jewelry history, which is really finding out, you know, sources of inspiration or why things were made. Mm -hmm. And um, so she did the same thing. And was there something that just clicked with you working with jewelry that you decided this is what you wanted to specialize in? You know, I, I liked working in the office. I really liked, I mean, I just feel lucky that I was with Penny and Ralph and so yes, and also I was extremely excited by the subject matter because I felt immediately like, you know, I just finished school and, you know, have a degree and you feel like, well, I know a certain amount, but I've never heard anything about jewelry history. No one's ever even brought this up. You know, you feel like you hear about like the Costume Institute and you see these clothing exhibitions, but it's so rare and still to this day to have jewelry exhibitions in the United States. I thought, my God, the potential for ideas here was huge. And I was really excited by that. And over that first summer, there were so many books in the library. I just, you know, I would take home books all the time and I read everything. But the truth is, I did think it was a summer job. I thought this couldn't be real. I couldn't possibly have this as a career. This is fake. This is like a fraud to be able to do something that's this amazing. So at the end of the summer, I told Ralph, I was like, well, I guess I have to go get a real job now. (laughs) And Because they were paying me by the hour. You know, they were paying me by the hour. So he offered me a position. And oh, no. and that's how I started. Wow. And then how did you get into editorial work with like in style? Oh, my God. Well, that didn't happen for a long time. Well, Penny, when I started pretty much right away, she already had a contract to do the book Hollywood Jewels. And we worked for five years on that book together, which seems like a dream nowadays, because everyone wants you to do everything so quickly. And at that time, it was just like, oh, take the time you need. We want this book to be beautiful. It's really another time and place. But Martha Nelson, the founding editor of InStyle, she wrote a story about Elizabeth Taylor's jewelry. And a friend of mine saw it on the newsstand and she had actually purchased the pictures we had in our book of Elizabeth Taylor's jewelry from our photographer. So we wrote her a letter saying, congratulations on your new magazine. We're so thrilled that you're covering jewelry. I mean, we were just like cheerleaders because it was the 90s and there was no jewelry coverage anywhere to speak of. And she wrote us back just saying kind of, oh, it's so nice to get encouragement from experts. And that was really the end of it. And then I think that happened about in the midway point when we were doing the history of diamond jewelry book of the 20th century. And then when that was finished, we were, I guess, promoting it and we reached out to InStyle and I told Penny, I said, well, you know, they're not going to like it because there's there really wasn't a lot of celebrity in that book. But at the time, 
the Jackie Kennedy jewelry auction was going on because she had passed away. And the editor came over and we showed her the book and she had no interest in the book because there was very little celebrity, as I said. And she said, but do you know anything about the Jackie Kennedy jewelry auction? And we were like, do we know anything? <laughs> we, we knew everything. So we did a story on it for InStyle and then that's how we started. And one of the th- things that's always been interesting to me is that you have all these consumer publications about watches. Yeah. You, you don't really have that many on jewelry and, you know, JCK tried one and, you know, you have one now. Yeah. There's not that much out there. Why do you think that is? And have you seen it shift a little? I think that's a good question. I think the watches, I mean, I'm fascinated by the watch audience because it is so rabid. You know, but I think that it's a completely different culture. It's such a male audience and it's kind of like cars and parts and limited editions. And jewelry is not that at all, really. I mean, jewelry to me is very much about design and romance and keepsake and story because i really believe that you can have something a piece of string that you've tied on your wrist that can be as meaningful as a diamond bracelet for whatever reason that you're making that piece of string feel like it's just they're very different markets even though we're always aligned with watches it doesn't have the same kind of collectability in that way you and penny were among the first to write about jewelry for a consumer audience. Have you noticed the way the consumer press pays attention to jewelry? How has that changed since you started? And is, is there more interest? I guess in retrospect, I look at it in a way that is not a way that I feel comfortable with kind of ego wise. But when we started covering jewelry at InStyle, there were no consistent jewelry pages at other consumer press. You would have an accessories editor and, you know, one month they do shoes, one month they do bags, one month maybe they do jewelry. Jewelry was pretty rare. When we started, when Martha Nelson gave us those pages at InStyle and during the glory days of magazines, I mean, Penny and I had as much as 16 pages at the publication, then it did up other people's game because, you know, it wasn't just us, obviously. It was, InStyle was a very powerful publication. It had a massive, you know, readership and, you know, advertisers were moved by it. And so if we were covering jewelry, people could say, well, why can't you cover jewelry? They have jewelry. We're taking, you know, so the advertisers were kind of backing us up. In, in that they were supporting the magazine because the jewels at that time, I mean, it was blowing the publisher's minds, was selling off the pages. You know, it felt very unprecedented. Magazines have obviously changed dramatically, but I don't see the kind of jewelry coverage in magazines that there was at that time again. I don't think there's that heat for people to, to do the coverage in the same way. And how did you and Penny work? Because I always find it interesting when you have a right team, especially since writing is considered something that's very solitary and you guys started before email, so it wasn't like you could kind of pass things back and forth. How did it work?
work as far as your collaboration? We sat at a big conference table in a library in Ralph's office. And I don't know, it just kind of flowed. We wrote everything together all the time. We talked it through. We wrote it down. Sometimes one of us would write on a pad of paper. Sometimes one of us would be typing at the keyboard. It just, it flowed like that. I actually heard an interview with the Coen brothers and they were kind of saying the same thing that, you know, one of them might just sit on the couch and the other was at the typewriter. One might be at the typewriter. The other was walking around the room. I don't know how it happened or how it came to be that way, but it just, it was absolutely side by side the entire time. Wow. What a memory. What a, what good memories of her. So I want to ask you about how, because you've written so many books for Bulgari. You've written a trilogy for them. You have a forthcoming book coming out mid-month on Bulgari's 50 years in America. B is for Bulgari. How did you get so connected to Bulgari and what's it like hanging out with them in Rome? That must be fun to do research. You know, everything, I feel like the answer to any question you have about anything I've done is always kind of like it's been an accident. You know, Uh it was kind of an accident with Bulgari. In 2012, they came to me. It was a different CEO, Michael Burke, who's actually at Louis Vuitton now. He came in and he wanted a book on Serpenti. And, you know, the, the PR just asked me if I could do it. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. And this was a couple, because I just to note that Penny Penny passed in 2009. Is that right? Yes. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. So that was the first one I did by myself. Okay. So you'd, you'd done all these books with Penny and now this was the first. Yeah. Wow. And so so you just, obviously they liked you and it, it worked well. So yeah. Can- it wasn't supposed to be three books, but the Serpenti was really um, successful. And it's funny now because Serpenti is so ingrained in people's mind with Bulgari. When when the Serpenti book was published, it was a coincidence. It was a fluke. It happened to be February 9th. I think it was 2013. And it was the Chinese New Year, Year of the Snake. And it was Fashion Week. And so everyone went absolutely ballistic. And I did a little exhibition in the store and they had like the Chinese New Year dragon that they kind of march around. And it just, for years after that book came out, people introduced me as the person who wrote the Bulgari Serpenti book and I was like I've done other things wow. you know? <laughs> when you write these books who's the target audience is it Bulgari fans is it people who are just curious and you know have nice coffee tables and want to put coffee tables yeah. yeah I think that's exactly right I think that's who it is jewelry lovers Bulgari fans people in the business people who collect jewelry people who are curious about jewelry I mean I think that in recent times we've learned a little bit more about our fan base because of social media. And, um, you know, I'm always surprised. I've had people tell me that their children read Beautiful Creatures, you know? Oh oh my God. You just mentioned Beautiful Creatures and, you know, I'm seeing the ticking time and I I don't want to miss asking you about these exhibitions. Like, how did you become a kind of a curator, an exhibition person? Yeah, I kept on thinking someone should write a, a, a story, you know, the blogger who became a curator. Um, yeah, I don't know. That was, you know, again, it's like I always feel like I'm kind of called in emergencies. I feel like when people are desperate for something, they're like, "All right, well, you know, call Marion." You know, like they've done all they can do in house, and they're just, you know, they've hit a wall. 
and they call me with the Museum of Natural History. They were renovating the Gems and Mineral Hall and they had this gallery and they were wanted to have a jewelry exhibition. And George, of course, was fully absorbed getting the massive Gems and Mineral Hall up and running after many years uh, renovation. So they called me, asked me for some ideas and that's how that happened. And it was your idea to do Beautiful Creatures, which is... Absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they actually had um, some different ideas and had a lot of meetings, always a lot of meetings with the museum. And you walk through the museum to go to a meeting. And I realized, you know, not having spent a lot of time there in a while, that my audience was about four feet tall. <laughs> Because, you know, it's a children's museum, really. And I was like, okay, that's number one. Got to do something that the kids are going to get. And then number two, it was their 150th anniversary. And I thought, well, it would be nice for the exhibition to pay tribute to the museum and to do animal-themed jewelry. And I swear, as soon as I had the idea, I was like, wait, do I like (laughs) animal-themed jewelry? You know, it's like... Did you? Like, were you like, uh, this is kind of a... No, I was like, I got to think. I got to think. Because, you know, there's a lot of cutesy animal jewelry, and I didn't want anything to do with that. So I really made rules right away, which my friends teased me about a lot. I was like, no barnyard, no domestic, no animals dressed as people. And they had to be made within the last 150 years. And of course, George, the one thing, George is very dry and kind of funny. And he said, Marion, can they please have gems in the jewelry? (laughs) And I was like, okay, yeah. So those were my rules. And then I went off and found the jewelry. It was, I mean, my lasting regret that I was not able to make it to New York to it was a rough time yeah it was it was a rough time when it opened still yeah because of the pandemic of course delayed it but it did happen and people lauded it I think you really inspired a lot of people including Lauren Harwell Godfrey did a collection of jewelry the designer inspired by animals it was her collection is called menagerie and it was after going to see your exhibitions yeah that was wild and you know you write professionally you've done books when you curate do you also try to kind of tell a story visually yeah like are they kind of similar things Yeah, I think that's extremely important. And, you know, I work on that really, really hard. It's very time consuming to make the story visual. So in many ways, people don't have to read it if they don't have the time or inclination to do that, but that they can see it because that's the experience with an exhibition. You want to talk a little bit about The Adventurine? Well, The Adventurine has been a dream because when I left In Style and I started it, it was a little bit of what you were saying, Rob. It was like, well, why isn't there people writing about jewelry in this way all the time? And it, you know, it certainly was successful at In Style in that environment. Obviously, I knew I didn't have that powerful backing, but I guess by the time it got to the end when ads were not what they were during the glory days, I was getting a little tired of other editors from other departments, you know, because we were within the fashion department telling me, well, no one cares about that. And I thought, you know, I care. And I, I think other people might. So I really launched The Adventurine because I wanted to tell all parts of stories that I enjoyed. And I thought there was an audience for it. And I've been thrilled that there is. I can't help old habits die hard because I always go to Marion for trend stuff. I can't help but wonder what you think some of the most exciting trends bubbling up now or that have come out of the pandemic and maybe influential in the coming holiday, if not the year ahead, like what comes to mind? You know, it's so funny because I feel like we, sometimes we go through phases, like, you know, we've been through such strong, easy trend phases.
phrases like men in pearls, you know, men in brooches or, you know, women in hoops. We had really strong or like the multiple piercings. And I feel like right now we're just on a simmer. You know what I mean? There's not something that's I'm feeling super passionate about at the moment. There's a few things I've got my eyes on. But I think that the exciting thing that's happening in jewelry that I'm watching is that it's becoming increasingly more sophisticated in terms of designers producing, you know, annual or seasonal even fall spring collections with organized themes and we didn't really have that in the past it was kind of this is my jewelry here's an extension of more of my jewelry and here's more of my jewelry you know what i mean whereas now we have people coming up with themes and stories and you know i find that extraordinary how sophisticated independent design has become. God, you've been such a witness to this evolution in the, or the designer renaissance. We could talk to you for a full round two. We'll just have to have you back. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank Mary. you. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Kay.